What am I? What is the relationship between my mind and my body? The mind-body problem is an age-older problem. One of the questions you ask yourself, are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and which thing that happen in addition to all the physical process in your brain? Or are they as themselves just some of those physical processes? And what about gut feeling, instant? How we can anticipate uncertainty and predict situations before it happens? Do we understand why that happened to us? So when it comes to design robots or soft robots, one of the questions we can ask, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? Should it be designed in a supervised way or open-ended way as we have in our nature? What kind of design we should aspire for? Optimal or adaptable? One of the questions we can ask, how do these robots can function at open-ended environment and anticipate the uncertainty? What if there's damage happening to the brain or the body? How they can adapt to each other in this scenario like that? What we are still lacking in designing robots to achieve the embodied intelligence? In this series, we are going to interview researchers from interdisciplinary field to answer these questions and trying to understand what are the missing pieces so that we can achieve embodied intelligence. And what kind of tools or series we need to develop for solving the dilemma of mind-body problem. First of all, we would like to say thank you for Professor Fumia Lida for initiating the International Workshop in Embodied Intelligence, as well as this podcast series idea as a part of the workshop. It was the first time in our field to have such a great event to stitch all the leading researchers and ask the basic questions and what could be the direction for achieving the embodied intelligence. I hope you enjoy listening to this series, and here's the interview. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us in the Embodied Intelligence uh, series. Such an honor to have you. Thank uh, you. Like... You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you first how you would like to define yourself or the audience, maybe first time listening to you. So I'm quite an interdisciplinary researcher, I think. I started off in pure computer science, um, got a bit disillusioned with the state of progress of AI towards general intelligence, and then um, tra transitioned actually through uh, mind language and embodied cognitions course in Edinburgh um, into a more philosophical side of things. And now I work somewhere in between the two, in between AI and philosophy of mind and looking at um, how we can build uh, AI systems that are more intelligent, especially from the cognitive perspective. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So I guess to ask you, because we have this first question, for maybe people first time listening, what is actually embodied intelligence? I know you are specified in the philosophy of the mind or intelligence. So if you can tell us about embodied intelligence, what we have already in evolution and what we're trying to do in the machine or robots. Uh, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, I'd like to ask you first about embodied intelligence. What is actually embodied intelligence? When people maybe first time listening, uh, what is this concept already? Uh, yeah. So 
Yeah, I think it depends sort of which angle you come from, what exactly that term means. But to me, sort of coming at it from the more philosophical angle, it's, I guess it's a collection of things. Um, one is that creatures that are intelligent or entities that are intelligent, some part of the concepts that they use in determining their actions and making intelligent actions in the world come through the things that their embodiment allows them to do. And for me, that's a mixture of the affordances available from the environment provided by the environment itself. And of course, those affordances are also defined in terms of what the creature or entity is capable of. So the embodiment of the creature plays a very strong role in defining the kinds of concepts in how they interpret the information provided by their environment and then use that information to achieve their goal. Mm -hmm. But then there's sort of further elements of embodied um, intelligence, such as like you can take this one step further and talk about how the represent representational content of such intelligent creatures might actually be extended beyond just pure abstract thoughts and into the, their bodies and into the environment itself. And also how, how like the actual makeup of the information processing that's going on might extend beyond uh, just something purely abstract into their embodiment and into their um, embeddedness inside an environment. But for me, like the crux of the matter is that it is a very tight interplay between an agent and its environment. And that's very dependent on exactly how the agent is formed and exactly what the environment affords in terms of what that agent can then do and how it represents information. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Um, I, I like when you said from different angle because when we see that already we have evolution, for example, we have some creatures they don't have a brain and exhibit intelligence through their bodies. And sometimes we ask, as a human, we have the brain and the body, but we have element like gut feeling or consciousness, which doesn't ex exhibit in other creature. So how, when you try to design that or apply that or abstract that in the machine, how do you see this kind of, yeah, other things like gut feeling and uh, consciousness? Is there something beyond the value and the brain, if we speak for a thing about that? How do you look for this element? So I don't know about translating gut feeling. I think someone else could probably speak to that. If we want to talk about consciousness, then it's kind of tricky to think of in terms of like every possible system that could exist. Mm -hmm. So the lessons from embodied cognition for me are very much specific or very much being applied to animals and biological creatures that exist. And especially to humans where we're asking questions about what it's like to be a human in terms of the embodiment that humans have. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, the really interesting thing is when you can abstract away from all the elements that are conditional on a specific creature or organism and look at what is that fundamental bit in the middle that could apply to all possible types of intelligence. And when you get that, I think looking at it from the embodied cognition or embodiment lens, can you can bring a lot of the lessons that they learned through very specific examples, such as human embodiment, and still apply some of the ideas, even in abstract cases where embodiment is very minimal or almost non-existent. And I think if we're thinking about something like consciousness, it's very easy and in fact, like we kind of have to think about it through a human lens because we only have access to human consciousness mm -hmm. as humans. But we should start thinking about these questions in terms of the sort of fundamental abstract concepts that give rise to consciousness in humans, whatever we can define them as being, could apply in many, many different, very weird exotic scenarios for creatures that may not have like extended bodies as such. Yeah. So maybe the question comes to people's mind, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? 
if, if we're trying to design a machine, for example, and we ask the question, what if damage happening to the brain and should adapt to the body? Or if damage happening to the body and the body can adapt to the brain? And even when we look at niches sometimes, there's serious about the brain side and the body. It's something, how the, the, the combination goes hand in hand. What about design a machine? How this kind of redundancy in design so that you can still have adaptable behavior? Yeah, I think if we look at history, that's exactly what happened. And if we want to replicate that, then we absolutely have to like evolve these things in tandem. Except the point of my research sort of moves away from that. And we're looking at creatures with or agents with very, very, very simple embodiment, in which case there's nothing that changes about the what their body is. In fact, it's mainly just a point in space. And the environment that they're in may change. So that might change the affordances that are available to them, which is part of embodiment. So that changes over time. And I think, I mean, that's the crucial thing for me is this interface between the actions you have available to you and the use you can make out of those actions to achieve your goals. And I think that can change over time, even for entities whose body is not changing in any way, shape or form. Mm. So as long as your environment is affording you new possibilities, you're seeing new types of objects or you're, or you're in having to solve new types of tasks, then you're already getting the key ingredient of mm. embodiment. And yes, contingently, in human evolution, we needed this interplay between the actual body changing and evolving and um, the environment we were in changing. But even if you hold the body constant and just change the environment, you still get the sort of the crucial part existing. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So maybe also a quick question here about the design process. You mentioned an example of that environment is a change. And of course, it's a crucial, but kind of task, but kind of environment we maybe deploy the robots or system we're trying to design. But the way we design them should be in supervised or open-ended way as we have in nature. Should we aspire to optimal designs or adaptable design when it comes to what we try to design? So in the field I work in, in deep reinforcement learning primarily, it's very common to just take a problem and then you fix that problem and then you just iterate over different architectures and iterate over different designs until you can solve that problem as well as possible. And the problem stays static. And usually what you find is you can do pretty well, right? You can get an agent at the end of it that solves that problem perfectly, but mm -hmm. then that agent doesn't apply very well to a new problem that looks somewhat similarly, similar, or you change some surface features of the problem and it suddenly starts to fail, even though what you change is, you know, the color of the environment and not the actual underlying problem that you were trying to solve in the first place. Uh, so for me, in, in my particular area, um, what I'm trying to do is come up with environments where it's already built in that the environment is open-ended in such a way that solving the problems means you have this kind of generalizability. So the only solutions that can work are the ones that can apply in unseen versions of the environment, unseen versions of the problem. And then you're already constrained to have to do the kind of solutions that we want in terms of generalization and the ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. Great. So maybe I ask you what could be something you think from your research work still missing, or maybe we have to give attention to. You think this is a missing piece that we can achieve what we are trying to do in the bullet edition. But this is something you think missing pieces here in the picture when you look for. So I, I think there's a lot of missing pieces. So mm -hmm. what one of the things we did is we made this environment, the Animal AI environment, and we ran a competition called the Animal AI Olympics. So in this competition, we invited researchers from all over the world to do their best at creating an agent that they could put inside our environment. It has to interact with all the different objects in our environment and just go and get food. The food is this like giant green sphere and it passes if it can go and get the food in lots of different environments. 
The key thing about this setup is they couldn't see the tests that they were going to be tested on. They just knew that the tests were going to be testing for certain cognitive capacities. So for example, we have tests about object permanence where objects move out of sight and the agent would only pass it if it understands that the object still exists once it's gone behind a wall or fallen down a pit, for example. Uh, we have tests using tool use. So the agent must use one of the um, objects in the environment. We have a U-shaped object that it can sort of move inside and push around to pull other objects like the food off of areas it can't reach and then get them. And what we found when we ran this as a competition was even the very best agents that won the competition did better than any others still fail at the vast majority of these tests. And then later we took the exact same environment and tested children on it. So children aged six to 10 played through the exact same tests that the AI systems played through and they just did much better. In fact, they passed some of these tool use tests where they have to go and use a tool that you know, they might not originally see as a tool, they might not understand it's a tool until they interacted with it a little bit and then use it as a tool to get the food. Whereas none of the agents, AI agents in our competition at least could pass any of these tests. So basically what that means is there's a huge number of problems we still have to solve, even in the case where we're looking at very minimal cognitive tasks and very minimal embodiment. And I can't unfortunately speak to the larger cases we have more embodiment involved, but for this minimal setup, um, yeah, I mean, everything pretty much is still open if we want to create AI agents that can um, solve open-ended cognitive tasks. Mm -hmm. What about common sense? If you can tell us about how you can explain what's common sense when you try to deploy in the robot or machine, what's something hard about common sense to, to abstract an algorithm? So if you can tell us about that. So everything, yeah, everything we try to test for could be seen as a common sense task. So these are the kind of tasks you would expect human adults to solve on their first try. And you wouldn't even bother testing human adults on these tasks because you would just assume that they would be able to solve them all. Things like taking an object that can be used to push into an obje another object and then doing so and act actuating the plan that achieves that goal should be simple enough for many humans. So we classify those as a type of common sense. Um, Every, yeah, every single one of those tasks that involves some kind of common sense reasoning was failed by the AIs in the competition. So all of them are still open research areas to solve. I think there's like many really good research directions to try to solve these. We need agents that have uh, models of their world that persist over time. They need to be able to do causal reasoning over the models of the world. So they not need they need to plan and say, if I did this type of set of actions that are some kind of high level, Mm -hmm. What effect would that have on the world? How would it change the world? And would that be beneficial to me? And they need to be able to do this in a wide range of unseen examples. They need some kind of hierarchical um, understanding of the objects, the affordances of the objects in their environment, and then some way of planning over the possible high-level actions they could do, not just move forward one step, move left one step, move forward one step, but go from here to here and then, then use this object in the way it affords to me to try and get this object and see how that plays out. And at the moment, we don't have any systems, at least that can do that in our environment where your inputs are at a pixel level and you have to then translate that into object level representations. And then you have to do planning over these object level representations. It's such a you know, huge open area for research. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So that is a question about uh, AGI or artificial general intelligence. What does it take to achieve that concept? Because some people think that will never happen, or maybe some people doubt that could happen. So for you, which area do you think we have to go for? It's architecture or the 
hardware or maybe the, the way we understand uh, the model uh, to understand how the human brain works or this kind of mystical things we don't understand to, to demystify and understand how they work. Where do you see this uh, concept could be achieved through? Is hardware, architecture, models, where? Um, so I personally think that when we build the right tests, people will start solving those tests and then that will be the best way for making progress in this area. So in AI, we've seen like lots of really influential test beds come up and then a few years later they get solved. Unfortunately, all the existing ones can be solved using surface regularities in data or some other tricks that doesn't generalize to the full AGI problem we want to solve. So once we get the tests right for what kind of skills we would expect an AGI to be able to solve, then people will be able to start solving them and then we'll start seeing progress. My intuition for the sort of types, the type of research that's gonna to lead to that progress is we already have a lot of fundamental pieces in place, but a much more effort needs to be made in understanding how we can get symbolic style representations out of low level, really noisy data. And that will probably be architectural work in deep learning or related field. We're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff there coming out very recently in terms of language use and applying sort of specific symbolic structure inside networks to create better networks of dealing with language. And I think once we start applying those into more open-ended physical 3D environments, um, that's when we're going to start to see the first step of progress in this direction. But the full road to AGI is very, very long. And I don't know how um, I don't know how much more we're going to be able to see from that vantage point. And then from there, maybe my answer is going to change. Mm -hmm. Great. So maybe I'm curious to ask you what could be the technological roadblocks or maybe challenges through your work or something still hard to understand how we can do that through your work. So one thing I think is missing at the moment is good interdisciplinary work on this area. So I don't think there's ever going to be one person that can understand how a full system works that's going to solve the kind of problems we've just been talking about. We're going to need teams of people, each one dedicated to specific elements of the problem. And at the moment, at least in AI, obviously the way to make AI progress is to get AI researchers together. But that, in, that means you're missing out on a lot of insights from other fields, such as philosophy and psychology and neuroscience and sort of all the cognitive science adjacent fields that have been working on these kind of more cognitive style approaches for, for many, many years, especially in terms of testing. For example, people working in animal, animal cognition have got very good at designing tests to try and determine what kind of cognitive capabilities an animal has. Of course, there's still huge debate in almost every actual case as to what the test exactly shows. But the fact that that debate has been going on for so long and hasn't been going on for so long in AI, just because what people are trying to solve is slightly different, uh, means that it, it's really bad if it gets ignored, because these, all these things need to be brought together to make progress. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm curious if you can tell us one question do you think people can contemplate about it in this animal cognition part from part of the big one, one of the questions you think very relevant. So from an AI point of view, the question is something like, how can you build a system that interacts in a 3D environment, sees a completely new object, as is incentivized to explore that object to work out how that object could be useful for it? Mm -hmm. We don't have answers to that yet, but when we do, that will unlock a huge amount of progress, I believe. Interesting. Thanks for sharing those insights as well. 
So I'm curious to ask you in that case, if you can tell us something you, from your passion, because you study a lot of things, but when you try to apply it in machine learning or building robots, for example, in that case, something was counterintuitive or you didn't expect this kind of behavior to what you already studied and you were surprised by this result or counterintuitive, yeah. I think one really counterintuitive thing is how much you can do with really minimal embodiment in terms of system. Because mm -hmm. when I was looking at this from the pure philosophy and like what it's like to be a human point of view, embodiment is this huge thing that involves, you know, how our gut bacteria interacts with us and how regulating our heartbeat interacts with us, as well as like what is capable to be done with, you know, having 10 fingers and the peculiarities of the human body. And it's very easy. Obviously, there's lots of very, very, very important, interesting questions there to answer from the human perspective. But if you abstract away with that and start working with AI systems in very, very simple systems with no extended body, but they exist at a point in time such that when they move into something, they bump into it. And that has a chain reaction of physical cause and effect. Then you start to realize that they're not impoverished by this so much because there's a huge amount of complexity and interest in like what it ha what exactly happens when they bump into something that causes the chain reaction that depend that changes how they can then interact with that thing and perhaps use that thing to their own advantage. Mm -hmm. So I guess that the surprising thing was just how much you can take away from the traditional elements of embodiment and still have like a really interesting core, just in terms of interaction with objects inside a physical environment, that a lot of the sort of larger feeling of why embodied intelligence is important still comes through. That's interesting, yeah. And do you think when it comes to like that, we have to weigh more about the body or the brain? Do you think which one we have invest more recently when it comes to the recent research we have? Do you think yeah. we have to invest more where? So for me personally, I think it's sort of the brain, although the brain is a very abstract thing in these, you know, AI organisms that are, um, you know, could be implemented in a whole infinite number of different ways. So not the brain as in neuroscience style brain, but the brain as in processing center as such. But for me, that is in even the most abstract case, never separate from the environment in which the organism is learning in. Because the way you update, you know, in AI, the weights of a neural network of an agent embedded in an environment is through its interactions with that environment. So there is zero point where you can actually separate that out. And that's the sort of main lesson I take away from embodied cognition is that there's this, this complex interplay between agent and environment never can be abstracted away. So even if you're just working on the agent architecture itself and, and there's no body as such, you are also working on that interplay and you can't ignore that fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to tools, do you think the tools we have already, what kind be of recommendation do you think we have to consider when it comes to the tool we have, for example, the simulation, high fidelity simulation, before going to this environment, we don't know how the robot will interact with different scenario uncertainty. So how to anticipate that uncertainty? Yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. And the tools that we do have, I think I'll just re-emphasize my previous point, which is there are tools from 
not traditional or not specific AI approaches that are as relevant and need to be brought in that have, have yet to be brought in, like the general more philosophical understanding of the mind and the brain and the interactions between uh, brain and environment. Um, and they already exist. There's tons of work on this that isn't, it's really hard to incorporate it all together. And that's the sort of next stage of things that need to, need to be done. And of course, there will be innovations in terms of how we build robots, for example, or innovations in how we build network architectures. And that's all going to change. Um, but there is a lot existing that hasn't been combined yet in the correct way. Yeah, great. So since we closed in, I have a few questions. What can be something you think about aspiration for your research work in this field? And maybe you have some sort of crazy ideas because you try to see it from different angle. When you see it, what kind of thing you imagine with yourself of the matter? I imagine this in five years or a couple of years that what I think about what should happen. Do you have any crazy ideas like that? What kind of crazy ideas? Yeah. I have a, I have a lot of crazy ideas. I think the most relevant crazy idea is that if we if this does work and we can start building a set of cognitive tests that can be applied really easily in deep reinforcement learning style architectures and we start making progress and we get and agents that are capable of solving these mm. like at the moment no agent can solve these very well even despite all the huge successes and the amazing things you can do some of these very simple common sense tasks are still very 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 hard i think as soon as we start making progress from just a task answering perspective we will start having a much better purchase on how to answer questions about consciousness because we'll have systems that are much more behaviorally similar to systems that we are happy to ascribe conscious consciousness to and also we'll have much better access to those systems we will have built them we will know exactly how they work now this is looking a bit on the crazy idea side and a bit further down the line but this will become increasingly important as ai skills develop and as they become better at solving cognitive tasks and the kind of tasks we normally associate with consciousness. So it'll be really important to have a setup where we can fully analyze what's going on and see how these things relate to each other. I'm not saying we're gonna suddenly magically find answers to these big questions, but I think just by being able to build such systems and be able to compare them to humans and being able to look at the cognitive aspects of how you would build them and how they, for example, store data over time and access memory and plan ahead and all the kind of things that we at least associate somewhat, somewhat with the content of our experiences, we'll be able to much better understand consciousness in humans and also mm -hmm. much better understand how we need to apply the term to all sorts of types of exotic type of entity, like abstract entities that only exist as a pointed space um, than we can now. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Thanks for changing this point. So I guess I'll ask you first, what could be something you have gained while working in this research line when you try to answer these questions, which is quite a lot of contemplation well, this kind of thing. So what's something you have gained? Other qualities maybe, yeah. I think the main thing is the people that I've met and been able to work with. And it's been really good to work in such a diverse group of people with different backgrounds that you realize that there's, I mean, so many people just, they have their problem in their field that they want to work on and they've made such great progress and done such interesting research that people outside that field probably never hear of it because you know, to progress well and far in a field, you generally have to be quite single-minded and focused and stay in your lane. So yeah, the, the best thing I've developed along the way is this, like this appreciation and meeting all these people who have like such rich ideas and understanding of, you know, ultimately what it is to be a creature that has cognitive skills and interests with its world. Um, 
that just having so many perspectives, I think is really good. Mm -hmm. And may I ask you what kind of book you have written this school and what's interesting to you, a book you could recommend for a student or early research interested in this field? Yeah, so I just was refreshing it the other day. So Murray Shanahan's Embodiment in the Inner Life is just a really excellent book on just most of the topics I've been discussing. He, he explores what it is like to be an embodied creature and what that means through a Wittgensteinian lens, where we sort of discard the metaphysical questions about consciousness and just focus on the questions we can answer through the use of the terms and the, the way that um, we can actually, you know, we interact with each other and we actually apply the things that we do. And it's, I don't know, it, I think it's very well written and it speaks to the heart of this issue. If you're interested in uh, what it is to be a creature that exists and is conscious or is um, able to interact with this world in complicated ways from a lens that's both makes sense to me at least from an AI point of view where you have really abstract creatures that are nothing like humans and from the human case. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. Thanks for sharing this book. And lastly, what would maybe the best advice was given to maybe in this scope and was maybe changing about you, the way you think about things and would like to share with us the best advice that was given to you. Yeah. Oh, that's really hard. <laughs> I don't, I don't... I don't think I have a very direct answer to that. Maybe, maybe if you would like to say it for also your people, if you have advices you think you have gained while working in this field and towards be shared with people, advices, yeah. I think my main advice is if you find something really interesting, then read widely about it. Like, don't be scared of reading stuff that's from a different perspective, from a different either you know academic perspective or cultural group or just anything that like could come and give you a new different type of insight the worst that can happen is it doesn't help you and you discard it the best that can happen is you have a new perspective at looking at problems so don't discard stuff that might be slightly alien to your field um maybe this advice is pretty bad if you're career focused and want to make progress and uh, stick to your lane and uh, get as many papers published or you know work on a specific problem in the very short term but I think if you're thinking any more long-term and you want to make genuine progress, then mm. this is needed. I really like this point. Maybe a quick question here. Do you think when it comes, because we've discussed about the risk and ideas and incremental development. So when you see the from helicopter view, for example, do you think we go more for risk and asking this question that you, I, I assume you are ever reader, so you read a lot on it. So how do you see we kind of, yeah, the way we think about these problems? Do you think we bold enough to go for risk or we are more conservative i think we have i mean we have people doing every end of the spectrum and that's all mm. that's always what you need so you need some people who don't really care about short-term progress taking big risks and making big leaps and thinking about the big problems and definitely they exist and at the same time you need people making real <laughs> short-term progress that you can then build upon and have actual, you know, implemented systems to solve these problems. Albeit, maybe they won't solve the grander problems that the long-term thinkers are thinking about. But if the short-term thinkers didn't exist, we'd make no progress whatsoever. So you need everything, and I think we do have everything. And yeah, it just needs to all come together. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So finally, do you have any final words like say for the series for people listening to you? Any final words? 
I think I've sort of emphasized that minimal embodiment is all you need as it's the crux of the matter and that I think you can build up from there a lot of interesting stuff. I didn't want that to take away from any research on actual like extended embodiment because I think that's also incredibly important and especially if you're working on uh, biological creatures and what it's like to be them or what how they actually work of course that's absolutely needed I just my personal perspective is that we want to be able to solve these questions for all possible entities and all possible entities of in interest have that key core element which is interacting with a persistent environment and that's where we can build everything up from so yeah I just wanted to make clear that I think all the other work, work on embodiment is really interesting and really exciting and also feeds back into my perspective of minimal embodiment really well because a lot of the conclusions still apply. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Matt. It was really inspiring, interesting to have your perspective in this year. So I do appreciate your time and it was interesting. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much.